Welcome to episode 120 of the Men Who Save Football at Undock FC Fancast. This is a post-match reaction to an unexpectedly good result. We thought that Pats would come to Oriel Park. In recent seasons, the teams have been very evenly matched. It has that edge with the whole Stephen O'Donnell issue. And you might have expected an even game, but it turned out to be anything but. Yeah, when I was coming down to uh, Dundalk on the Matthews bus, I was really not looking forward to the game. I was quite apprehensive. And I, to be honest with you, I'm going to straight up say I thought we were going to lose. Uh, I just thought that the general, the fallout, and the, what we had seen against Bowes, I thought Pats were going to be up. Now I'd heard from Pats fans that they weren't particularly good the week before, even though they had won their game. But I wasn't that enthused. But weirdly, I was walking up towards the ground, and when I saw the team sheet, I started to get quite excited because the he rang the changes, and it's do what you might as well. If he had, if he had set out, I know it's immediate injuries because obviously uh, Alfie couldn't play, but if he had set out the same team that went out against Bowes, uh, that's why in my head coming down the bus, it was the same team I saw against Bowes. But he rang the changes, and you really sometimes. In the past, Skip has sent out a wildly different team. I remember going, going towards Tala one day and looking at the team going, oh dear, you know. But when I saw that team sheet, I got really excited, mainly because um, it's, it's like the, I thought, you know, do or die, throwing in uh, Rehan Tullock and uh, Lee Coco, I just thought they made such nice little um, cameos against Bose. They were at the, if, if the night, if the night uh, daily match was pretty grim, the, 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 the positives, I thought, were, for instance, the two of them, their contributions. So to see them two start, I thought, that's pretty brave, but I, I really want to see more of Tullock. We said it last week, his little cameo last week really gave us excitement. Um, and to see Kelly and Leahy uh, starting, you forget as well, we talked about this, like, you know, the injuries we've had. So Kelly and Leahy would be from last season, you know, some of the first names on the team sheet. So the team was this mix of brand new <laughs> players and old reliables and it worked um and it worked from the get-go i mean listen let's all get out of the way now pats were extremely extremely bad i mean they were shockingly bad and maybe we'll talk about that at some stage but i don't think any of that would take away and i know the comments and we'll get into this it has to be in the context of pats being bizarrely not up for it but Dundalk have a habit sometimes of coming up against teams who aren't particularly good and making a mess of it. I mean, we have our own... Uh, we, we could have shown up and not be up for it, and you could have been looking at the most dire nil-nil or a one-all with two insanely easily defendable goals. But you can only play the team against you, and we went out there and we did our job. Um, not perfect, it never is with Dundalk. I think a team more up for it than Pat's would have scored one of those chances because there was some insane in-the-box ping-pong balls about the place. But I'm not going to sit here and complain about a 5-0. Um, and one thing I loved is, uh, of all the goals, I mean, I think directly or indirectly, you know, like uh, Muller was involved in two goals, either an assist or his when his shot was um, uh, saved and sent in. And uh, Mali was involved in two goals. Tullock was involved in the goal. So, and uh, Ainsley. So, the new boys, apart from Pat Hoban, the new boys, and uh, I know Greg Sloggett as well, but it was that mix of the reliable, like Sloggett and Hoban, and the new lads for the goals. Um, and then I thought people like Kelly, Leahy, Boyle, those old reliables all did their job well. Um, so, it was a really, really enjoyable night. Greg Sloggett ran himself into the ground. Um, 
everyone made a good account of themselves. Um, again, the only caveat I would say is, I think if Pats hadn't been insanely off the ball, um, they would have got a few goals because we were slightly chaotic at the back. But um, extremely, an extremely enjoyable night. Yeah, I, I think everything has to be prefaced by saying that Pats were extremely bad. But uh, apart from that, right, I think to some degree, maybe we made them look bad um, or maybe they made us look good. I don't know. We'll have to decide the reality of that in time. But uh, we went with the, the same formation as last week. And I think last week I complained vociferously that that did not work well for us, right? That it didn't work well offensively, but it didn't work well defensively. But last night it certainly did. And I think the key part of that was different personnel. So as Rory mentioned already, Daryl he came in at left back and Louis Ainsley slipped, you know, sort of inside at, uh, at center half. I think also Andy Boyle playing at the right side center half. We don't see him there a whole lot. Like he normally plays the, the left side center half. Um, I thought that worked quite well, right? There've been numerous times over the past week where the player on the Dundalk team who seemed to have the most possession was Andy Boyle, right? And constantly looking for somebody else to do something like outside him. Um, and that really seemed to struggle with, whereas the switch to, to right center half seemed to look quite comfortable there. You know, himself and Ainsley, I think, played the ball around quite nicely. And I think numerous people commented, right, that uh, I think the fullbacks this time gave us a little bit more width uh, by virtue of the fact that they were, you know, sort of left-footed and right-footed respectively, right? So I think that worked quite well. But also just ahead of them, I think we had a big change of personnel. I think last week we had Paul Doyle and Alfie Lewis uh, to start the game. And this time we had Johannes Coco and Greg Sloggett. And I think I've been calling for months and months for Greg Sloggett to be given a chance in this position, right? That it's his best position. And I have to say, I feel very vindicated right now. <laughs> I think he had an absolute stormer. I've always said that, you know, I didn't think he was at his best playing with his back to goal, right? And sometimes trying to, you know, sort of get turned and uh, this kind of thing when the, the ball was fed into him. When he plays with his face to goal, by contrast, a little bit deeper, I just thought he was amazing, right? And it didn't stop him getting forward into advanced positions, right? There was times where he was overlapping Pat Hoobin, uh, trying to get past him into the box and things like this. It was just amazing, like a absolute show-storming performance from, from Greg Sluggett. And Yuli Koko played a little bit deeper than he did, right? I think Skip seems to still favor somebody in the middle who plays in that sort of playmaker role that's, you know, a little bit in behind. But I think Sluggett, with his face to goal, I think... You know, an absolutely fantastic game. I think that is his position. He should be playing there all the time. Uh, if Skip decides to change that again in the future and put him back, I am going to send an angry letter or something like this. I don't know if Skip reads his mail. Maybe the court proceedings this week showed that uh, maybe that's not true. But uh, either way, right, I think that's that's where he has to be for the next little while. Um, and ahead of that, like I, I think a couple of crucial differences as well. Like last week, we had Ryan O'Kane on the left. We had Greg Sloggett on the right. Uh, they seem to struggle, right, to sort of either provide much width or you know sort of really get a lot of passing going with with Mali in the middle last week whereas this week we had uh Tulloch on the left hand side and Daniel Kelly on the right hand side and what they provided was a lot of width especially Tulloch right I think a lot of the time he was playing you know really in the two to three yards in off the touchline and this kind of thing right so he was really adding a lot of width there and I think Daniel Kelly just pace 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 and we say so many times that like one of the really decisive factors is pace in this league, right? As a league, it's not blessed with a whole lot of players that are very, very quick, but Daniel Kelly is. And I think 
that kind of personnel difference, right, in the same formation made a whole lot of difference, right? Pats were just constantly threatened by those two. And I think it worked really, really well. And I think you add into that, like up front, Pat Hooban as well, who did another stellar job, still dropping quite deep uh, on a lot of occasions and trying to pick up the ball. But like this time, he had people going past him down the wings that he could lay the ball off to that had that sort of genuine pace. And I think in Tulloch, we see somebody who not only has pace, but an ability to sort of shift his body and go different directions and, you know, really worry defenders. And at one stage, you know, we were sort of giggling in the stands that, you know, he's taken on three players on his own, but none of them seem to be able to, you know, get the ball off him and this kind of thing. Like, that's the kind of threat that really, you know, sort of panics opposition defenders and things like that. And if anything, I think a little bit of a complaint of last night's match was we just didn't get the ball to him enough. Right. There was a lot of time where he would show, you know, a little bit of a spark here and there, you know, for a minute or two and then be sort of anonymous for the next, you know, sort of 10 or 15 minutes. But uh, if we can, I suppose, work him into the game a little bit more, you know, if there are three people marking him, then there's space elsewhere on the pitch for, you know, other people at the same time. So you can, you know, even if you don't get the ball to him, you can still use the threat that he possesses, you know, to sort of unleash other people. And I just thought that was fantastic. Right? It, uh, no doubt it puts pats on the back foot a lot but they were really the architects of their own downfall as well like I think I turned to you again after the first goal and I said it was very obliging of them not to mark Pat Hoobin right in the box from across uh in five minutes and they really continued that I think you know sort of for the the second goal as well um and even I think Mally's goal at the end right he sort of he gets the ball back off a a Pat's mistake and sort of ambles across the front of the box. Chris Forrester doesn't tackle him. The defender doesn't tackle him. And he sort of, you know, picks his spot and uh, and rolls the ball into the net. You know, I think we're going to face teams that have a lot more bite than that in the, the next few weeks. But there was a lot to be optimistic about at the same time. Yeah, just like Rory, I was very apprehensive going to Oriel Park last night. Um, anyone I was talking to yesterday, I must have thought I had this big grey cloud hanging over my head because I definitely didn't think that we were going to get a result last night. I would have taken your hand off for a draw before the game for a point. Um, and I certainly couldn't, didn't see that coming. And that wasn't because I don't believe that the ability was is in the squad, or I don't believe that Skip has the, has the you know the, the wherewithal to do what he did last night or what they did last night. It was just a gelling factor. I just thought we had a few more weeks to go before we'd actually become more, yeah, be become more competent than we were in uh, Daily Mount on on on, on last Friday night. But uh, yeah, I really really enjoyed last night. Um, the big question, like, were Pats really poor or were we really good or do we just make them look really poor or <laughs> make us look really good? Uh, as as Martin said, maybe in, 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 a, in a, couple, a couple of weeks' time, we might be able to answer that question. But one thing's for sure, uh, we started off uh, with intent. And I know that they didn't uh, defend their set pieces very, very well, but we were able to capitalise on the fact that they didn't set, um, uh, defend their set pieces very, very well, which I thought was brilliant. What I really liked last night uh, was the fact that when we went two up, uh, we didn't just sit back. Uh, we kept going and going. It's, I think this, the performance last night, the reason why I was buzzing so much, and I'd say the reason why people were buzzing so much was because when we got our noses in front, we didn't sit back. Um, when we got our noses in front, we kept pushing. And uh, we just looked like a threat every time we got the ball. I think we rattled Pats. I don't think Pats were expecting, you know, uh, the quality that, that that we delivered last night. You know, you could go through every player individually from Shepard right up to Hooban. And I don't think it would be a bad thing to say about any performance last night. In fact, I think you'd say that they were all stellar performances, even the subs that come on. Um, I'm going to have to pick out Raheem uh, Tullock. On, on the on the on the wing as you know as as real one to watch, uh, his his strength, his ability to to pass players, um, his footwork was incredible, and I know 
people might say, oh yeah, he scored a tap in at the end. If you just have a look back on that on on the uh, on the highlights reel, I don't know how many times I've seen you know League of Ireland footballers fluff that that position. The composure which which he was able to take the ball down and put it in the back of the net was was incredible. So I think he's definitely definitely one to watch. And I thought the overall game was really really uh, entertaining entertaining. I loved like towards the end of the end of the first half. I kept nudging Rory. Um, I said the, the battle between I think it's was it um, Noah Lewis number two for for Pat and Pat Hooban. Like I think I think Lewis I think Lewis thought you know he'd have the better of him. He's a much bigger guy. <laughs> he just picked the wrong player to to have a go at because Hooban just nailed him nailed him a few times and just said look. I've got more experience than you. I'm stronger than you. Um, you know, I'm going to put you in your box, and he did. And I, I that 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 to me was, you know, a, a real uh, a real standout point on that Dundalk performance last night. We've said it on the podcast before, and we're asking, do you think we need to be just a little bit meaner or a little bit stronger? And I think we got that last night throughout the team. Even Dickie Kelly, when he was playing last night. As you said, Martin, that that speed that we need in in the team, but it's speed with strength. Um, he really showed his League of Ireland experience last night, and he took that goal so so well. Um, and you know, I'm just absolutely buzzing from it. Uh, you know, do I expect a five nil, three nil, four nil win in Oriel Park every time we hit? Absolutely not. And I think that uh, you know, we talk a bit more about the game coming up on Monday night. But I think we really have to celebrate last night's um, last night's uh, victory because it was really really good. Felt really good for the players and I think it meant an awful lot to skip apart from the whole you know sympath saga thing that what that's going on but it just it was really really good for him to to like a packed house three three thousand five hundred um fans in and for us to win five nil so it was, it was a real buzz last night it's cool when Stephen O'Donnell came out after last Friday's performance and claimed that he saw positives a lot of people sort of raised eyebrows because the performance had been so flat but if we go through the team, like you say, he did ring the changes. Uh, Davis came out of the side and Muller moved out to the right, which wouldn't have been a change most fans would be screaming for. I think Davis has been doing okay at right back. That allowed Leahy to come in. And I think Daryl Leahy's quality and influence was on display last night. I think he made that left side a lot more robust where Louis Ainsley had sort of not had a great night when played out of position. New defensive partnership in the middle then always a little bit nervous about whether that's gonna hit the ground running but we saw that the defense despite a few moments when you're always going to have them generally speaking held up Nathan Shepard remember when he joined the club a lot of clubs targeted him for crosses and corner kicks put the ball right on top of him with players crowding around him he looked very assured taking high balls last night so that's a sign that his game is ever improving but if we look at the new arrivals, and I mean the guys that have come in, not just in this transfer window, but re really in the last few days, I think it was them that really transformed the performance from last week. We saw that when they were introduced as, as substitutes last week, they did bring an energy and a dynamism that we were missing. You've mentioned uh, Tullock on the wing. I think we may have a real star there. Now, we talked about Stephen Bradley last season, and he went on to have a kind of a little bit of inconsistency, but there was a lot of quality from him. But... It's a while since we've seen a winger who could like fluidly torment defenders, weave in and out of them, get beyond them and get balls into the box with consistent quality. It's really glad to see him do that. That's the type of exciting player that fans kind of, you know, get out of their seat to see. I think he could be a real gem if he continues in that vein. He looked lively in Daily Mount when he came on. He looked very, very effective last night. And that sort of player is always sort of an exciting addition to any squad. 
And that sort of speed and strength and dynamism on the wing, I think it helped the whole midfield function. Now, I don't think, again, this is one that O'Donnell has pulled out of you know the bag that nobody probably saw coming. When Yili Coco was brought on, he got the goal. He looked like a very attacking player. If you look at his previous playing history, I think he's played usually in attacking roles. Skip puts him in as the anchorman, effectively, the deepest midfielder. Now, we know that we've cycled through... A lot of players in that position. We've had Lewis in there. We've had Doyle in there. We've always advocated Sloggett maybe in there. I'd say that choice surprised everybody, but nonetheless, it was effective. Yuli Koko looks to be a very, very technically composed and gifted player. He's got a good range of passing. He may not be the crunching, tackling, Roy Keane, Chris Shields style ball winner, but Stephen O'Donnell seems to favour a more cultured player in that anchorman role. And he may have found one now who will be competing with Doyle and Lewis for that position. Last night, would you say Yili Coco looked the part in that role? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that that's kind of, we've always talked about that being kind of the, the missing piece of the puzzle. And listen, you know, after a 5-0 and, you know, you can get ahead of yourself. But I think we've seen, it. there's definitely the, you know, you shouldn't judge these things after one game. But if you're looking at like, what to do for the next game and what to do going ahead. I think you would definitely be running out the same formation again because I think uh, Yili Koko definitely made that position his own and, as I said, released Slogget to do other things. And Slogget was just... I think Slogget's game improved because of Yili Koko's uh, uh, play as well. So it's not only that he had a good game, but then he you know, improved those around him because they were able to go do different things. And just on Tullock as well... It's funny you mentioned Bradley because he reminds me of this time last year when we were looking at Stephen Bradley. The big thing, like as Damien said, is his just innate natural skill level is a level above League of Ireland. Um, now, I know he's a low knee, so this is, you know, I would say savour it because we're not going to see him again. I would say this is a one season. Uh, so I, I would say savour it. But he reminds you of Bradley because even this time last year, Bradley running around with the ball, he just is a step above the League of Ireland level of skill. Um, and he showed that with his, with his runs into the box. It was just, I mean, the, the only thing that was frustrating is there was at least two chances he should have stuck away. I just, he didn't pull the trigger, but he was dancing around with the ball. Um, so I think the two of them really justified their start. And as you said, I think we possibly have solved the midfield uh, situation at the moment. I would definitely run it out again. The changes had to come in after Bowes. The changes have worked. And I think that looks like a much more balanced team. The, as you said, the new new additions uh, have really, really contributed. And I would say as well, um, Mali had a great game and and Muller. So they're also, I mean, almost like they're veterans now compared to the lads who've just come in last week. But I think Mali and Muller really, really have shown that they're betting into the team. And, you know, Muller uh, had his position changed. Ainsley looked way more comfortable where he was uh, than he has been. I mean, he looked completely lost in Daily Mount. Um, he looked much more comfortable. Uh, now, always caveat with the fact that they were playing against a team that not sure got off the bus and walked onto the pitch. Uh, but they, they really did look uh, comfortable where they are. So I think definitely... Um, uh, Edie Coco, Tullock, and then Mali and um, uh, uh, Muller and Ainsley all, all, all looked uh, really positive uh, additions to the team. And as I said, the lads who've had a few weeks looked like they've bided in much more. So we could be looking at, uh, you know, uh, a nascent kind of 
first team you'd put down to send out again and again and, and see how, how, how they fare. They'll have sterner challenges, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't overly egg the Pats were awful thing because Dundalk, we have seen Dundalk go out against bad teams and completely fluff their lines. But that that formation, that starting formation last night, and the way they were set out, um, looked as good, you know, as uh, I think O'Donnell probably has at his you know, has his options. I mean, in the last, I mean, a lot can happen in a week because in the last week we've other things to talk about. But there was so much uncertainty, and after like only on the pitch wise, leaving Daily Mount, it was just head scratching stuff. But what are we going to do? But in one week, rang the changes, put some players in new positions, and as it. I think like Sloggett had an amazing game, but that's because of the changes around him. Um, so uh, it feels as though something might be might be betting in, and it's because of those players being given new chances and new positions. The one thing I would say about Yelly Coco, like going back to Ken's original question, is that he does look a bit lightweight. Right, I think it'll take him some time to get used to, I guess, the the tempo and the physicality of the league, which we know is a bit of a thing here, but. Um, I think, you know, there were occasions last night where he was brushed off the ball reasonably easily. And I think it was a good job he had somebody like Greg Sluggett next to him, you know, who had all the physicality. Like, honestly, we just need to get him on the same training regime as Greg Sluggett, right? <laughs> because whatever they're they're doing for Greg at the moment, it seems to be working, right? He's got the intensity, he's got the physicality, um, like his strength and conditioning just looks like absolutely incredible. So if we can get uh, Yuli Coco on the Greg Sluggett juice, uh, I think afterwards, right, just... Uh, beef him up a little bit. I think that's the the only concern you'd have about him in the middle at the moment. We can turn to the other member of that midfield trio, which Rory you mentioned, and that's Connor Malley. Now he has since he arrived looked like a really technically gifted player. I'm going to make a comparison to a player that sort of divided opinion during his time at Oriel. We know that Will Patching, when he came in initially, he also looked a little bit white lightweight. He was in his first period for Dundalk, often easily pushed off the ball didn't strike people as a player with electric pace. And when Vinnie Pear tried to talk him up, uh, people were a little bit sceptical. Then went to Derry, was very successful, came back to Dundalk, made a big contribution to our, our European run. And I think now is regarded as a very influential player at Derry, particularly regarding set pieces, assists, and chipping in with the occasional goal. Now, maybe Conor Malley will diverge off and become a very, very different type of player. But if we look at his performance last night, we have often bemoaned the lack of quality for set pieces. You know, we can even go back to the to the Darren Meehan era and say that we haven't really had somebody who can consistently deliver quality set pieces since then. Malley opened the scoring last night with a very well-delivered ball to Patrick Owen. Now, Owen was assisted by the fact that he wasn't tracked by Breslin in the Pats' defence, which seemed to become characteristic for the night. But it's a real high-quality delivery. And we said last week, you give Pat Owen quality delivery and he will finish it off. We saw Mali was able to contribute that. The second goal also begins with a Mali set-piece delivered into the box. Pats can't clear it. It's centred and Ainsley gets his goal. So... You know, it's not quite an assist, but nonetheless, it's come from one of his set pieces. He gets a goal himself towards the, the latter stages of the game, and he's also involved with the ball that goes to Sloggett, who then feeds it to Kelly for his goal. So Mali is kind of all over the goals last uh, night in the build-up. He's nearly involved in every single one. Do you think he could 
make that type of contribution to our squad. Basically, the way that Will Patching chips in with a lot of goals, assists, and quality set pieces is Mali in that mould. I would say based on the evidence of last night, absolutely, because you said he had a hand in so much of us. Um, we've been throwing our you know hands to the sky at our dead ball situation for a while now. Um, and, you know, sometimes if Keith Ward isn't on the pitch, there's really not many other options. But I thought last night, I mean, OK, the constant caveat here that Pats like, were non-existent for that. But we said it last week, you know, it's but getting balls into Pat Hopin. So what more could you ask for? Perfectly, perfectly delivered. And that's, you know, listen, if you're obviously you have to contend with defenders and sometimes our, our set pieces go straight to the hands of the keeper or straight to the defence. But... That went straight to where Hoban was and knocked it in. And yeah, he said he had a hand in everything. So I think the Will Patching comparison is really interesting uh, because we're seeing, you know, uh, these new players beginning to fill roles that were, were possibly missing or we hadn't replaced. And I think that's definitely, I mean, I've been impressed, even though the, the results have not been great until last night, I've been impressed with Mali in every single game. I said, if, even from the UCD game, I just thought, caught my eye immediately that he definitely has something to contribute and that's probably in that I think you're definitely going to see him up there with the assists and obviously chipping in with a few goals so again another one of those that is early on I mean it, if we put down the first two games as a betting in period for these new players what you can look to last night is they've had a few games to begin to play together Skip's had a chance to work out maybe where people should go but Again, you, you don't want to get too run away with yourself and, you know, <laughs> end up having to <laughs> track back this stuff, you know, maybe next week. But um, it does take time for new squads to gel. It takes time for new players new to a league to adjust to it. But I've definitely, I mean, look at last night. How could you not say that Conor Malley has embedded himself into the team and be one of those ones who be first on the team sheet now? Because he, he has shown us his contribution. Um so again, it's another one of those pieces, I think, as you say, like, you know, we're missing the holding player, we're missing that, you know, Will Patching style uh, creative uh, element in there. And so far, he's, 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 you know, he's learned his lines and he's playing the role pretty well. Like, I think the um, comparison with Will Patching is a pretty good one because, you know, as you said, when Patching first came in, uh, it wasn't easy for him to, I think, put his mark on the game, right? Uh, I think he often found it a bit difficult going. And I'd say, if anything, like Conor Malley has had a better start than than Will Patching did. But uh, he does look like he's, you know, not the quickest player. But at the same time, you can see the quality that he's got in terms of, like, getting on the ball, bringing other people into the game. And I think we had that, like, Maisie ran Tullock run uh, last night. And one of the key things is the way that he played a 1-2 with Conor Malley, right? Malley dropped deep, was able to receive the ball, turned, looked up, you know, found... A sort of a great pass between two defenders to to put him back in and i think that's the exactly the kind of thing he can do right um i think he needs i think a little bit of like i say other people running off him i think having those options either side creates a bit of uncertainty for other defenders that they won't close connor malley down as much as they maybe otherwise would right i think sometimes he looks like he gets a little bit isolated where he is the ball and pat hubens drop deep and there's nobody going past him and it's a bit more difficult right he hasn't got the pace to you know really get away from players and things like that but um neither does will patching right and i think 
at the same time, like you mentioned, that he was instrumental in like some of our European runs. I think particularly in Europe, right, where the pace of the game is a little bit slower, I think he could really excel, I think, in that environment too. And so I think if he can, you know, work his way into a system in the League of Ireland where he's really contributing at the same time, then I think it's the whole package. You've mentioned it a few times. Pat seemed to be uncharacteristically lethargic. I mean, have you any idea why, you know, the goals began to rein in and we never really saw a response from Pat's? And by the end of it, I think Chris Forrester is usually their talisman and one of their most creative forces. He didn't really make an impact on the game. Another player who's well regarded, Jamie Lennon, got the hook at half time. And he actually had Forrester, you know, failing to really muster a and even run to track Mali as he slots in the final goal and then sort of kicking out at Mali in a rather nasty and frustrated way and picking up a yellow card for it. What was it about Pats last night, do you think, made them so poor? I think that we were actually really good last night. I'm going to go out and say that because, I mean, it's not like Pats didn't have chances to get back into the game. You know, it's not like they didn't have, you know, have the opportunities to score um, and, and get one back. Uh, and it kind of make up a game of it. I just think that that we went again. I don't think they were expecting it, Ken. To be honest, I don't think they were expecting. You know, they probably done their team analysis that, 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 of how we played against Bowles and what we were like against UCD, and based their game plan on that. And what actually happened was a completely different dog team arrived out in the pitch in Oriel Park, a hungrier, more determined, skill more skillful and stronger team than they expected to turn up. And when we when we went two up and they didn't respond, and we got to half time you know, with, with the lead. Um, you know, I, I they were out first on the pitch in the second half. It wasn't as if that they, they had they had no intention. Like they, they came out with a purpose and and we just we just, you know, kind of almost Kenny era esque, you know, in terms of like we just continued on where we left off. And I just don't think they had a response. I think frustration then kind of set in, like I suppose in the latter stages of Chris Forrester, um, you know, lashing out. I really just don't think they were expecting massive support up with them, which was really good to see, by the way. I would uh, um, definitely tip my hat to the Pat supporters come, um, coming up. Like they, they were hungry for it too. I don't think Pats weren't hungry for it. I just really, really think that they, they faced... Like I didn't expect to see that Dundalk performance last night. Um, I really didn't. Um, so I don't know. Maybe Martin and 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 Rory have, have other ideas as to you know in terms of their game plan and the you know the analysis of how they played. But I just think that I think I don't think we should. You know, I'm I'm not saying this so people get their hopes up as I said earlier on and that we're going to go on and win every single game or anything like that. I just think last night. Pat expected a different Dundalk and a different Dundalk uh, come out on the pitch in Oriel. I, I think you're dead right on 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 some things. I mean, I again, Pats were awful, but that doesn't mean Dundalk weren't good. And on another night, you know, Pats come out on our bad, and Dundalk come out on our bad, and it's just it's a woeful nil nil, you know. And it's both teams just hoofing about, and we've seen Pats and Dundalk do that. But I think Damien's right about one thing, which is we scored so early that they were then rattled. So if they're if they have a bit of malaise, and maybe you, know, I will say one thing: they beat Shells last week. But some of their own fans on Twitter were saying, you know, Pats were awful. I mean, they were saying that's as bad a Pats performance as I've seen in years, and they won the game. So I think the warning signs, and Pats signs would know it better, are in the camp that something isn't going right. And again, even last night, Pats signs, I mean, how could you not be, <laughs> how can you not say you were bad after losing 5-0? But it was interesting to hear those comments last week, even though they beat a Dublin rival. Um so something is clearly going on there. I mean, look at the, the as you said, players like Forrester and Lennon and stuff like this. I mean, they've got, I, 
at the start of the season, I, I, in my head, I, I tipped them for third. Okay, and again, it's very early to say to throw that prediction out. I would have said the dog would be fourth, Pats would be third. I assume Pats would have pushed on from last season and improved on where they were because they had a less. I know they lost some players, but they did a less tumultuous time maybe than Dundalk have had, and um, probably a steadier situation behind the scenes. You know, so. Um, but I think the early goal probably rattled them. If you are going into the game with uncertainty in your camp and then a textbook, you know, uh, set piece, Pat Hoban goal, five minutes in, you know, 3,000 Dundalk fans, good atmosphere. And it just, I think Dundalk had the front foot then. And I, apart from my will, there was a few defensive wobbles. And I do think a better team than Pat's probably would have put the ball in the net. And maybe you're looking at a, a one-all in the first half or maybe a 2-1 in the first half and it's a completely different game. I do think a more on, and, and this is again not to be negative, but a more on-the-ball team probably would have put the ball into the net at some stage last night. Uh, I think we were blessed. We saw a few balls just sail past the post. Let's not forget that. It was like a few grimaces in the stand because I think there were some balls that sailed by there and, you know, Nathan's looking at the, you know, at the far post and another team puts that in. So, but we did our job really well, and you cannot argue with a 5-0. So I just think that they weren't on form, but got rattled very early. And then, especially once they went 2-0, that was game over. I don't think they could really mount anything. Um, I think if had they scored at 2-1, it would have been an extremely nervous period. Because you know Dundalk can get a little bit, you know, go a little bit internal and lose their confidence. And you could have been looking at it, oh, God, and you're just waiting for Chris Forrester in the 96th minutes to just ruin our evening. You know what I mean? If it's a 2-1 situation. But um, second half, they just might as well have not come out onto the pitch. Um, but I, I I mean, I can't account for it because I think it's they've got a pretty good squad, they, you know, a good manager, and they, I thought they would push on from last season, but I don't know why it is the way it is. I can't tell you tactically why it is because I think it's like I said about Dundalk last season. It's a malaise. It seems like sports psychology stuff to me because they, you could say they, they set themselves out wrong. Or anything like that. I just, we all saw it. They did not seem up for anything, any duel, anything like that. So, and we were there to pick the carcass. There is something to be said, though, I think, for the Dundalk intensity as well, because one of the most memorable moments for me was like fairly late on in the second half. I think uh, Serge. Ateaki got away down the right-hand side and Hayden Muller made a bit of a mistake, right? I think he stepped up uh, and then didn't make the tackle and had to turn and chase, right? And I actually thought he was going to be beaten for pace, but he made his way back. But he ended up basically muscling Ateaki off the, the ball and the ball just like ran out for a goal kick. And, you know, three Dundalk players basically jumped on him and like grabbed him by the shoulders and were, you know, sort of cheering him on and this kind of thing. And I thought, you know, these these boys are pretty pumped up for uh, for this kind of match. And I think we saw that at several other, you know, points in the, the game as well, right? It, you got that feeling that the Dundalk team were just really, you know, psyched for that kind of thing. I think Dickie Kelly as well, when he got his goal, went a bit mad. <laughs> he was sort of ready to sort of almost fight the stand. And uh, it was just, yeah, there was a, a lot of, energy like that went into it and I think maybe it was just one of those nights that you know Pats uh, sort of were a bit intimidated by that you know that uh, they didn't really expect it and it was there in their faces 
Now, at the same time, they also couldn't defend a set piece to save their lives, right? I think any time we got a corner or a free kick or anything like that in the first half, it just looked like they were at sixes and sevens. We were getting, you know, sort of free headers and people free all over the place. And I think, you know, that really contributed, I think, to a sense of sort of disorder in their team where everybody was nervous. They didn't really know what was happening and that kind of thing. But at the same time, it wasn't like Dundalk put on a huge amount of pressure in the first half. We got two goals, like, basically from, you know, next to nothing, optimistic balls into the box. And the rest of the game was characterized by, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, sloppy passing and stuff like that. You know, the, the we didn't keep the ball for any, you know, sort of long spells or put them under intense pressure or anything like that to, to get the goals. And I think, you know, for me, it was probably the third goal that, that killed it, right? At the end of the first half, you got the impression that there was that pinball in the box, right? They'd hit the posts and, you know, we were you know sort of all over the place. And as Rory said, right, there was a couple of balls whistled past the posts that could easily have gone there at the other side and made it a lot more nervous. So I think at the start of the second half, they were still in the game. But once Tullock gets that third goal, right, they sort of are ready to get the bus back up the M1 at that stage. And I think it's only like two minutes later when Dickie Kelly taps on the fourth, right? At that stage, it's it's just game over. So, um, But they did look extremely sloppy paths, right? It wasn't even just their energy levels. Like there was times where they were kicking balls that were, you know, sort of six or seven yards into the shed. Right. It wasn't as if they were close to finding their man and stuff like this. It was just, it was all over the shop. So I don't know. It, it didn't look like a tactical problem. It didn't look like, well, to some degree, right, they're marking from corners and stuff like that is probably tactical and sort of preparation stuff. But even like the basics of just, you know, picking people out with passes, they seem to be miles off. So I don't know. You're, you're right. I think it's sports psychology territory to try and figure that one out. It is also early in the season and we can see that there's a massive transformation. Like you've mentioned the way in which the team seemed up for it. And that contrasts last week when we really didn't seem up for it and we didn't seem competitive at a psychological level. You probably will get an element of inconsistency right throughout the league at this time as players bed in and relationships are formed. Like the table right now looks quite probably a lot different to how it'll end up. You can see Shamrock Rovers are second from bottom. We're now sitting pretty in fourth. Our next opponents, um, Shelburne, they've been a model of inconsistency. So three games, they've had a win, they've had a loss, they've had a draw. Um, If we turn our attention towards uh, the game on Monday night, um, how do you think we'll fare against Shells? We know that last year they proved themselves to be a very well-organized, hard-working, dogged, not necessarily very entertaining side to come up against, but they really managed to frustrate Dundalk and take points off us. Do you think that we can expect similar on Monday night? Uh, or how would you think that their strength of their squad would measure up against the Pat squad? I, I think they'd be expecting Shells, as you said, Ken, to come um, very very well set up and very hard to break down <clears throat> and very well organised. And uh, I, I think that it's going to be a different game. I'd love to see, I'd love to see a scoring goal early um, and I'd love to see us as hungry as we were um, last night. Uh, on Monday night, because I think if if we see the performance, the same performance again, I I I'd love to see I'd love to see that I think we we could get a win. Um, but as you said as well, the, I, um, at this time in part of the season, you know, it's going to be there's going to be ups and downs, and there's going to be like in, inconsistencies. So it's kind of really it's completely it's completely going to be a completely different game, a completely you know new experience to see them. Uh, to see Dundalk out in the pitch on Monday night after you know winning five 0 so um, I, I think that 
shells will be hard to break down and uh, I would love to see us score an early goal and see if we can we can hold on to it and then see how they how they come out and play because I'd imagine they'll come they'll sit back and they'll hope to hit us on the break so um, yeah I'm hoping that we that we get the three points but it'll be a tough one I don't think a team can come out and play as poorly as Pat State so you off the bat you have to assume it's going to be harder because I I don't think Anyway, like that, that, that will probably go down as one of the worst performances we'll see all season against us. So statistically, Shells are going to have to come out better than that. Also, Shells are not the tail in the air because they've just won uh, the North Dublin Derby, so which is a big deal, you know what I mean? They they will be psyched. Um, I don't know much about the game. It probably wasn't a pretty affair, but they got it, you know what I mean? So they, they're going into the game psyched. We're going into the game psyched. Um, the only thing that would give me, I mean... It's a hard one to call because I think Shells will 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 be dogged. They also will have seen uh, our result from last night and probably be pretty wary of that. I mean, if you're going a few days after a team has demolished one of their closest competitors five 0 they are going to be they're gonna I'd say gonna be very tight, very dogged. They will not want to go down to a defeat like that. And I think Shells are. We saw them last year. They if they are resolute and stubborn and I mean that in the best possible way I think they're going to be extremely frustrating uh, on, on, on Monday and as is their want and their right to do so but I would say that the dog probably have confidence flowing through them now today I'd say at training today post-training they are going to be really 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 up for it and it's going to be things like how are shells going to deal with Rahan Tullock? You know what I mean? How are they going? And if they're dealing with him, then you've got Pat Hoban and stuff like this. So shells will be dogged, but they're also going to might have a handful on their hands because I think someone like Tullock now is going to be off the leash for a few games and say, like, teams are really going to have to deal with him. And if you're dealing with him, we've seen, you know, obviously we all know about Hoban, and then you've got Dickie Kelly on the other side. So potentially the dark egg could really, really run them ragged. But the flip side to all this is I just think that shells are going to come and, and and really, really set themselves out to not take a whipping. So it's definitely not going to be another 5-0. That's what I would uh, definitely predict. When we went to the cup final last year, I think that is the only time last season we saw shells beaten by more than an odd goal. Right? I think the whole characteristic of their team last season was, you know, wins by a single goal, defeats by a single goal, or draws. And uh, I think I just expect more of the same, right? I'd be very surprised if Monday's game wasn't tight like that. The one thing that Derry had over them was the accuracy of Derry's passing at the time. And I think they got their opening goal right from a really long diagonal that, you know, sort of hit the man on the far side, left back, got caught under it, and uh, Derry really exposed them in, in that area. Funnily enough, I don't think that's our game at the moment, right? If you looked at this Dundalk side, you know, sort of incisive, accurate passing isn't really what we bring. It's more of a sort of um, pace and intensity and, you know, um, that kind of thing. So I don't know if we've got the secret to unlocking that, you know, sort of shells Achilles heel where we're going to, you know, sort of breeze past them. I think instead, you know, as everybody else predicted, right, it's going to be very tight. It's going to be very close. And hopefully I think it will come down to maybe just the, the quality of finishing, right? If we get, you know, that odd chance, can we stick it in the back of the net? Uh, I think probably it's been a great boost for everybody so far that like most of the attacking players are already off the mark, right? Pat Hoopin got a goal last night. Dickie Kelly got a goal. John Martin got one in the opening day of the season, right? I think hopefully everybody feels that they are ready to pounce upon that chance if it comes their way. Whereas I think some of the times that we met Shells last season, 
Huben was injured, right? A couple of people weren't in the best of form. Uh, we had that game in uh, Telka Park where like we missed three guilt edge chances, right, to, to win the game. And I think if we can just get that quality in the, the final third, then I think we might have enough to win. The league seems to be still on a high. We saw again in this series of games, we had basically more interest in the game between Bohemians and Shelburne than the ground could accommodate. There was like away allocation sold out, big, big crowd. Massive crowd in Tala for Derry versus Rovers. Another big crowd in Oriel Park. Definitely, you could look at the multiplicity of factors that are driving interest. And, you know, maybe social media is one of them, maybe better marketing, more professionalism. With the COVID effect, we've talked about some of these. One effect that perhaps has got a lot of attention in the legacy media is Damien Duff himself. Very, very high profile international, one of Ireland's better players for the last, you know, generation. And he's come into the league and he certainly hasn't adopted a kind of nice guy persona that he's only here to kind of get a few years experience before he seeks a job elsewhere. He's he's been, you know, almost Trumpian in his kind of uh, rhetoric. It's He's becoming very strong about Shelburne as his club. He's declared it as the only club he will ever manage in the League of Ireland. He's been very bombastic about opposition and comments. And, you know, he's kind of become very much a prickly character. We were we ruffled some feathers with Shelburne last year when we um, when we pointed out that their team was, in addition to being well organised and dogged, were also not above cheating and trying to get players sent off, which, you know, we did take issue with, and I think rightly so. But overall, in the main, do you think Damien Duff has been one of the reasons why there is more interest in the league? Has he been good for the league? When Duff was announced, I, in his typical kind of, you know, League of Ireland militant uh, kind of uh, almost cult-like behaviour that I have, that many of us have, I really resented um, the attention he got because it felt like it's a kind of a, you know, when Jerry Adams, I'm going to get political now. When Jerry Adams was dropped into Louth for a seat, it did feel a little bit like someone using it as a stepping stone type thing. And I felt naturally enough, a lot of attention went on Duff. Now, I announced it on Twitter. I said, it's a bit annoying. The league is doing its thing. And it's suddenly, because when Duff was announced, writers who don't ever talk about the League of Ireland started talking about the League of Ireland. But someone did, I mean, Keen Carroll did kind of retort, but any attention is good attention. You know what I mean? And I would say now, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, of, I, I'm a fan in a way of Duffer's attitude. I think he has taken to the league like a duck to water. And I think the league needs mad people, you know what I mean? And I, I do like around the world when managers are a bit crazy, a bit of personality. I can't stand, I won't name, I was going to name some managers in, in, currently playing their pride in the English league who are just boring, you know, soundbite heads, you know, Ted Lasso heads, you know what I mean? And I think you need lunatics and um but i i love the fact that duffer is uh, uh you know riling people up i like the fact that he gets sent off i like the fact that he's passionate and uh some of his comments during the week are stephen kenny-esque uh commentary on socio-economic factors he was mentioning the class makeup of shelburne fans and stuff like that so i think all oh, that's good you know what i mean um and um i one thing i would say is that i think he has earned normal attention now it's not no longer Damien Duff as you said one of the best footballers Ireland ever produced it was a big name you know what I mean um who did amazing things in his career I think he has now earned his attention by just being a pretty dogged 
somewhat controversial League of Ireland manager. He's, he has earned his place amongst the pantheon of League of Ireland managers who get attention by saying things that League of Ireland managers say. And he, I think he's got a true results as well. But I think on somewhat limited resources, he has turned Shells into a very effective unit. I mean, I think Shells fans would have said survival last year was it's always the first check mark. I mean, I know as Cork City fans and stuff like this, staying up is your first job when you get up. Then you build on that after. Um, there's a good buzz around Toka Park. Uh, they stayed up. They got to a cup final. The cup final was probably a regrettable experience for them, but to get to a cup final, being where they were, so I think he's doing a good job. And um, now, obviously, I hope he goes home with a face like a smacked arse on, uh, on Monday. But, you know, uh, more power to him for the rest of the season. I think to answer your, your question, Ken, no, I don't think it's got to do just with the Damien Duff factor and the fact that we, you know, the league is on the up. I think the league is on the up because of the potential within the league. I think you can go back as far as our European run where we stood toe to toe with Giants and we performed. I think that's probably where you kind of see the league on the up. And you've got Tala. Um, like the 7,000 people in Tala last, last night, and it's got nothing to do with Damien Duff. Um, it's got to do with uh, Sean McGrover's and their consistency. Uh, it's got to do with Derry, you know, and their investment and the the fact that they're going to mount a challenge, a serious challenge this year. Um, I think, but Rory, you are right. Like you know, with with journalists who would not normally write about the league, writing about the league because Damien Duffus in it is good for the league. That 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 is good, and all publicity is good publicity. And uh, when it comes to these things. I think that it's an element in it. I mean, you've got a former international and a great and, and a player who's like a, a former player who's played at the highest level managing a team in the League of Ireland. I think that's really, really good for the league. But I do think I get that divide that we're on the up because I think the general public can see that, you know, there's a real investment in facilities, albeit just in, in, in Tala at the moment. But the fact that Daily Mint's going to um, come online hopefully soon as well. That you know that there's serious, there's a seriousness about the league, and and, and the, the quality of it's quite good. And you expect Shamrock Rovers to get to the group stages of the Conference League again this year, you know. So that that you know yet again that raises the profile, and having someone like Damien Duff in the league is very good. I he, he wears his heart on his sleeve when it comes to Shelburne. If they are the only club that he's going to uh, manage in the in the League of Ireland, that's you know that that that'll that'll be good for Shells. And he had a, I think he had a great season with them last year, uh, even though like the, the the final wouldn't have been, you know, one of the you know, the best performances. I still think it was great for the club to see, you know, to be able to mobilise such a big support and bring them to the Aviva. That's really good for them. So then it's really good for, for the league as well. I think that he is good, but he's not the reason why the, the, the league is on the up. I must admit, I'm a little bit surprised at the current level of interest in the league. Because I think between 2016 and 2019, I think the standard of football in this country was considerably higher than it is now. And I think, you know, we've seen a constant bleed of talent right out of the league over the last few years. Uh, and I think especially even, you know, just in the, the close season, right, we saw players going from the Premier Division here to League Two in England, right, for better money and this kind of thing, right, not going to a particularly high level, but still leaving the league. And uh, I, I would say if we've seen anything so far this season, right? The league is very competitive, right? There's, uh, I think, no standout team at the moment, right? Everybody can sort of beat each other, but I don't think we're seeing like amazingly high quality from, from any one team. Um, and I think, if anything, there's a more interesting effect, right? That when you get sellouts at games, all of a sudden, a sort of, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, 
some kind of psychological change occurs in the general public where they suddenly see like there's an event on and I can't go to it because there's no tickets available. It must be something special. And the capacity of the grounds in Ireland is not that big, right? I think, you know, that's it's very limited capacity. But once you have that sellout factor, you know, we've heard stories of people touting tickets online and some of this like a thing that is just unheard of for League of Ireland games lately. And that's a, the kind of behavior that only happens when those sellouts happen. Once that kind of psycholo uh, psychology takes over, it's just, it sort of has this effect that all of a sudden it gets more people talking about it. There's more social media attention about it. Uh, and I think it's just, I don't know, it seems to be driving a bit more attention to the game and uh, and certainly in and around the grounds. Speaking of uh, public attention, shall we turn to Twitter to see what the reaction to last night's game was? Um, so the reaction to uh, last night's game, uh, I said after two weeks, of, or I was warning listeners to of, to maybe uh, if you're of a sensitive nature to turn away, it's uh, surprisingly, unsurprisingly, much more positive. Uh, so Key and Carol comes in um might be wrong, but it looked like 4-4-2 when Dundalk had the ball, but Kelly up top at Hoban uh, made them uh, a lot more of a threat and attack. Sloggett in that box-to-box role, all action. Uh, Yili K- uh, Coco has a touch of class about him, and Tullock was a menace. Boyle a rock at the back too. Dan Pope says, lots of positives last night. Great balance to the side, intensity, new signings imposing themselves, five different scores, threats from lots of areas. Skip did a great job at last year's squad, but early signs are this one could be an improvement. Lots of potential, exciting times. Jay McOwen says, um, best I've seen in a while. The squad has the potential to do serious damage. Uh, and if they've clicked at this early stage, then anything is possible. Daniel Sexton, uh, Greg Sloggett, man of the match, gave us drive when we needed. And Tullock is going to be a cult hero. Pats were pathetic, so we can't get too carried away. Kevin Mullen says, uh, it was an excellent performance from the lads. The team was set up to play on the front foot after Pat opened the scoring and was only going to be one winner. Tullock and Yili Coco backed up the promising signs from their debuts v Bowes and Mali controlled midfield. Brilliant. Simon Blackboard says, probably the least 5-0, 5-0 I've ever seen. We were very good at times, but looked shaky at the back at times too. Song it was great. You'd almost feel sorry for Kelleher and Kerr, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you? I think Simon might be... Um... Uh, slightly uh, laying on the sarcasm there. Orla Crilly came in and says it was bloody great. Tullock is a baller. Andy Boyle, like his old self, had everything covered. A pleasure to watch. Looking forward to going back on Monday. Rory Gilsonen looked like the team had a full week's training behind them. Hunted in packs and looked fitter and stronger. Muller superb at right full, as was Leahy on the other side. New lads, again, were top notch. Andy Boyle deserves a special mention. Looks reborn. Jane McDermott, great to see Andy Boyle back to himself. Slogget was superb. I'm expecting great things from him this season. Ian Sharkey came in with a good performance, pressing well from the start. Greg was excellent. And of the newcomers, Mali was probably the pick. Shane McGurk said, what a performance. We need it again Monday night. No critical points. We had a great balance tonight. Elaine Sweeney said, great game and result. Uh, great to see five different goal scorers. Fenton Kieran uh, came in with, uh, we were that, were we that good or were Pat's awful? Uh, good to see players clicking together and taking chances. Um, can only be good for confidence and seeing Stephen O'Donnell pushing until the very end. Happy Friday. In Gonnelly said Tullock played well on the left wing, his man of the match. The back four were more assured and looked balanced. Andy Boyle was back to his best. Good partnership with Ainsley. Midfield to a man put in a good shift. Overall, a great win. This is one happy supporter. Bring on shells. 
And finally, Sean McDonald says, great performance from the duck, state of intent, but St. Pat's keeper was very poor. So uh, a lot of uh, positivity for uh, Andy Bull there as well, which again, we kept talking with the new lads, but I think, um, I mean, uh, whenever the man, amount, man of the match is announced, uh, Martin always turns and says, what does Andy Boyle have to do to get a man of the match? But in a strange way, it is like one of those things I'd say that it's the way football is and the way football is marketed, which is strikers and attacking players mm. catch the eye. And, you know, the defender never really gets his day in the sunlight. They just do that kind of thankless job. But, uh, yeah, no, I think Andy was great. And I think that's been consistent. I thought even though the team generally was a little bit off the pace against Bohemians, I thought Andy Boyle and Greg Sloggett were both very good. And I think they started the season very well. Hopefully that will continue on Monday night when we will face Damien Duff Shelburne. Other news from the week. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but we can keep the big news, I suppose. Uh, as regards to Sports Club AGM, we can maybe talk about that next week because that's going to be a long-term thing. Uh, there was a frank interview from the chairman as well, which sort of cleared up all the speculation that had kind of grown in the information vacuum from the previous week. Rory, do you want to tell us what you thought about that? Yeah, I think it was a, kind of the double whammy with the open letter. I mean, I think the open letter the day of the Bose game, I know the result that night wasn't great, but I thought that was a good help. I know some people accuse it of being somewhat vague and, you know, um, I think that vagueness was finally nailed down with, uh, with the chairman's comments in the interview with Gavin because he pretty much said that the whole deal is off and that was the thing which was really worrying fans. So I think on the pitch through steady things and off the pitch there's a lot more clarity. I mean, I, I would say They've been nothing but honest in many ways. From the get-go, they said they want investment. They admitted to talking to Hull, and they said the deal wasn't for them. What more can the Dock fans want? They are courting investors. And that's, that, that's not a secret. But I think that they are clearly only going to do the right deal. I don't think they're gung-ho. They said the finances are safe for the season, so they can take their time and get the right deal. And I think that came true in the interview. It settled the debate on the whole thing. I do think, going back to last week, that one of the big problems was the comments that came out of Hull, and they were a bit, you know, shooting from the hip, frightened the life out of the dog fans. But I think that has been put to bed. I, they are in talks with other parties. Speculation is going to continue throughout the season. Journalists are going to continue to report rumours. Fans are going to continue to, you know, lose their minds over rumours. But what can what can the club do? The club put out the open letter. And then I think the double whammy calmed it again by saying the whole deal didn't happen. We did talk to them. Um, now, it has been a somewhat a double hit because on the field things went well as well. But I think it was a good week for the club. Um, clearly need... Um, investment they're clearly looking for investment but um it's it kind of put that saga to bed for now what more can the club do <clears throat> well i think what the club could do is just be a little bit more on the front foot and not to let uh you know rumored journalism take over and to cause panic within the town <laughs> that's what i think the club could do and i think that the minute that, that there was a sniff i mean Dundalk's a small town there's a handful of journalists <clears throat> on a couple of fingers that could, um, you know, that, that that report these stories. And I think that you know the, the, the club should just just be on the front foot and just say, hey, look, this is what we're in. we're in we're in uh, negotiations with whoever we're in negotiations with. It don't have to do this every bloody single week. That's that's not what I'm saying. But you could see kind of where this whole whole thing was going. Um, everybody knew it was Hull, and then 
Yeah, you've got, you know, it, it turns into silly season then, you know, and I, that's the only thing I think that the club can do. I'm not being critical of them here whatsoever, and I completely and utterly agree with you, Rory. I trust, I trust the current ownership to do what's right by the club. We need investment, yeah, and that's a fact. And I think that, I, think I might have alluded to this last week or said it last week, it's not just investment on, on the pitch. We need huge investment off the pitch. We need huge investment in the resources. If we look at other clubs and how many people they've employed behind the scenes to do to do the work, we need that as well. So we we need an awful lot uh, in terms of investment, and um, I trust uh, I trust the current gang to <clears throat> to choose that right investment. And I'm not 100 convinced that the whole the whole deal wasn't the right investment. That's you know that that's what I'm going to say as well. Because nobody knows the ins and outs of that. I just think that there was too much made of a possible a possible. Uh, uh, deal and I just think that you know if we're going to start reporting on these things every time somebody mentions a deal nobody will ever want to invest in Dundalk because it'll just seem that like a deal cannot be done. Yeah I think it's a bit of a dilemma because as with any possible contract like you could you can view a takeover as just a kind of having a similar trajectory to a player negotiation I mean if you're say to take a random example if, if Graham Burke is coming to the end of his contract at Chamber Grovers and you're going in for him you're not going to do a running commentary on how much wages you're going to offer him to bring him to Oriel Park and you know therefore you know like there's certain things which you can't do in the public eye and you can't do with full transparency negotiations are like that for players they're like that for coaches they're like that for your backroom staff those sort of things they're usually not conducted in full with full transparency so that everybody can see every step of the way usually you know like we had at the start of the season the coaching staff go out and they try and recruit and when recruitment is concluded they announce the player but before that we don't really know who we're in for or exactly what terms are coming in from even after it we don't know exactly what terms they're coming in from so 100 transparency from the club on deals and money and all it, it never customarily occurs with players and it probably isn't ever going to occur with a takeover you can understand the hypersensitivity that the dog fans have to potential investors particularly if they're if they're going to be majority uh, people who take over we have been so catastrophically burned by that that i think psychologically we're scarred and that's what caused the alarm but if the dog fans can kind of just get used to the positive news that people are interested in investing in the club and those discussions will be taking place periodically they probably have been taking place since the new ownership took over and maybe not to panic when we're told that the club is in discussions with x y or z uh, presuming this will be a reiteration of the peak six experience because the way it is and we kind of have talked about this last week there is now an imbalance in the league i mean you look at Tallis stadium it is growing with each passing season, it's going to become an unparalleled facility in the League of Ireland. It's built with public money. Daly Mount Park is being rejuvenated. And I also think that there's a substantial amount of public money going into that too. Finn Harps are getting public investment. I suppose a question could be, all right, we need investment. If it comes from a benevolent, responsible private source, like currently the ownership are, they're a private group of private individuals, in the keeping with the business model that Dundalk FC have always been run on, which is a, an amalgamation of local businessmen who have come in to run the club, private investment is fine if it isn't pathological like Peak 6 has turned out to be. But a question that we might put out there and discuss in future episodes is, 
Why have, and I've done this a little bit myself, why have we assumed that Dundalk FC isn't entitled to the same public investment that other clubs have got? I know we're a lower population, so the county council doesn't have the same resources, and business people around the town will tell you that Loud County Council just says no to that sort of proposal, usually whenever it's put on the table. They don't really consider themselves in a position to do it, nor do they have the inclination to do it, it seems. Why have we sort of accepted that as just a fact? And I think it also has a, a national angle to it as well. I think every every politician that seeks to be elected at the next election should be asked a question on the doorsteps. Do you think that Dundalk FC deserve equitable treatment to Bohemians and Shamrock Rovers? And will you make it a manifesto pledge? I'm getting a little bit political. But I think, you know, essentially what we have here is the public money is now tipping the scales in favour of particular clubs. And if you look at Scotland, like any year, you know, we're not even following, you know, how teams are doing. If I asked you who's going to win the league in Scotland this year and you haven't watched it for 10 years, if you say Celtic or Rangers, you're pretty much, you know, going to be right. Uh, I think it's Alex Ferguson's Aberdeen are the last ones that won it outside of that big two. That's a very unhealthy situation for a league to progress before. You know you've got two clubs in Scotland who are like way outliers in resources compared to almost everybody else. So if you're a Kilmarnock fan or a St Mirren fan, you know, aspirations of actually seeing you win a title are almost zero. And you can see that then that creates a, a situation where even Celtic and Rangers, you know, they're not competing from week to week. Therefore, they get to Europe and they hit this wall. Because when they're going to clubs with much less resources, they're not really playing competitive football in the same way that we are when we're playing teams of a of an equal level. So the point is, I mean, if the if public money, if government or county councils are going to tip the scales and give already big clubs free stadia, which allows them to gang get into a positive feedback loop. And I'm not resenting that. I think it's great that Tala exists. I think it's great that Daily Mount is being rejuvenated. And I think that should happen for Finn Harps and it should happen throughout the country. But it shouldn't be given to some and not others. I think you know, it, 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 on, on the basis of equity, you should have public money available to clubs that need stadia. It should be seen as, a, it, in the rest of the European Union, it's seen as a municipal function to actually, you know, accommodate sporting activity in your area. And as well as that, it avoids this prospect of us tipping into a duopoly, maybe, where two big clubs just become so financially powerful and successful that they just run away with uh, the, the the level that they can perform at and essentially our league becomes very very much less interesting than it is right now yeah well, i think even the finn harps situation shows that if you've if you're able to put the right package together the state is willing to invest in a project that you're running but you know we can complain i think all we want about Louth county council or something like that but you know as far as i'm aware nobody at dundalk FC in the past 10 years has put a proposal to them saying this is what we want to do and I think there's sort of some structural issues there right I don't think the club owns the land on which Oriel Park is based um, it's changed ownership I think at least three times right in the last decade which means like no one owner has really had that you know sort of what would you say long-term you know uh, strategic direction in mind where they're thinking about fans facilities as their top priority and you know even peak six for all their faults 
Uh, you can see that they were very honest about the situation when they came in. They said, you know, our priority is keeping the team successful and getting them into Europe year on year. And facilities don't really come into it uh, on that basis, or at least not fans facilities. Um, and so, look, with that in mind, I think, I'm not saying Dundalk are their own worst enemy in this regard, but until somebody puts together a coherent vision for what they want to do and is able to articulate that to Louth County Council or to central government, I don't think there was any chance of that kind of project happening, right? And so I think at the moment, the onus is on the club to do that. Yeah, and I think Dundalk has some somewhat unique issues. Like if Finn Harps, I mean, in that area, they're the only one looking for money. Dundalk has the situation um, of looking for money in an area. Down the road, we have Drogheda. And then we have Louth GAA. So there's a few groups floating around probably looking for money. I think the ownership of Oriel Park is a huge issue. Because I would say that the public purse probably is going to be hesitant to put money into privately owned land. I mean, I, I mean, if I was running the state, I would be a bit cautious about that. Yeah, no, so I think uh, the, the fact that we don't own Oriel Park um, is, is an issue to getting money in. And then there is the highly emotive issue of moving away from Oriel Park. And I, you know, a few years ago, there was this talk of moving into DKT. And now this is one issue I am militant on. I think it would be the death knell of the club to move away from the town centre or near the town centre. I've articulated this before to people and I will, that's the hill I will die on. Um, when Dundalk are not faring well and the crowds are low, the fact you can walk up to Oriel Park, get a pint on the way, get some chips on the way back. If we move to an out of town facility, when Dundalk on the pitch go down, that is going to kill crowds dead. Unless you have a, 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 a public transport infrastructure, which we don't in this country, that would support that. So I think moving off site, unless you can find a site as close to the town centre as Oriel Park, um, there's no discussion for me. Moving to DKT or anywhere else or sharing a ground with Drogheda is just not an option. So I do think we have some unique factors in Louth, uh, and particularly with Oriel Park, that makes this difficult. This is probably another discussion for another day. Um, I do remember at one stage, though, a, a nascent committee was formed involving, you know, the usual uh, envelope, uh, you know, openers, uh, usual show up to the opening of an envelope uh, characters um, that went nowhere. And I, I think we discussed that on this podcast, and it's not surprising that that went nowhere. It was never mentioned again. But some local cross-party names who, as I said, show up to the opening of uh, envelopes um, were mentioned. That committee never went anywhere. Did you hear anything from that? Um, so maybe if we could get someone like John McGahan to stop pointing at potholes or complaining about Michael D. Higgins to care about Oriel Park, maybe we could uh, get somewhere on this. In, in the interest of political um, equity, do you want to also slag off similar politicians from other parties? Well, I, I would just say that that committee did have Sinn Féin involved and Fina Gael. So I, I will I will say that I don't think it was just Fina Gael grandstanding to get their name on a press release. There, there was also Sinn Féin councillors and I, I, Rory O'Murka could have been mentioned on it as well. But that committee vanished. And now I know it was a peak six led effort, so probably vanished when peak six went. But at one stage, remember, it was an announcement that one day we'll make an announcement. Mm. It was a, we let's let's sort the Oriel Park problem. We're forming a committee, but as far as I can say, all the committee ever did was announce they had been formed. But we need we need that again, essentially. The whole thing about the committee the committee thing, I think it's important, um, you know. But I think that saying that, like, 
I, I would distrust the politician. It doesn't matter what side of the spectrum that they're on. Like that committee would would appear, probably appear at the front door of my house now if I said that I had the money to, to rebuild Oriel Park. And I was just looking for a little bit of political incentive or a little bit of, sorry, a little bit of political backing. Every one of them and their, their secretaries and everything else would be outside the front door. You're right, Rory, these people show up at the opening of an envelope and they only show up when they think that there's a photo opportunity for them. It's not on their radar. It's not on their agenda. It's nowhere near it. And I think that's, it's it's lamentable, I think, that, um, that it is. And I don't think it's just, you know, I don't think it's just, uh, you know, Dundalk FC as well. Like, as, as much as the Chinese money has went into uh, GAA, there hasn't been too much in terms of local funding coming from that either for, for from, from local government. So maybe it's, a, maybe it's a thing to do with the area, you know, and maybe it's not a giant up thinking, but... Um, yeah, I think you're right, Rory. It, it would be the death knell and, you know, it would be the hill I would die on too to see Oriel Park moving away from the centre of town. And I think it's just, it's it's really, really important that that it is somewhere within the centre. I drove past up on the bypass today. I was looking at the big site that is to be the GAA stadium. I just thought, like, even though there's nothing there, I just thought this is going to be a soulless place because it's just, in the, it's in the middle of, it's in the middle of nothing, you know? I don't know, guys. I think, I'd be, I'd, Martin has talked me around. I think we may have to look to ourselves rather than just blaming the politicians, which is fine. There's the comfort in that. It's always nice to moan and give out. I mean, that's kind of what we do from week to week. But if you look at, say, the GA stadium that's been built at the top of the Avenue Road, GA is a very sophisticated organization. I believe that their win a house draw raised over a million, I believe, and it was well integrated into social media and tickets were sold throughout the county. Now, this is in a county where if you ask a GAA person from another county, they consider loud something of a GAA wilderness. Now, even though there's clubs on every street corner, but as, as regards inter-county football, there isn't many places like Loud where you've got two Premier League soccer teams, but no uh, real county performance that kind of, you know, gets the popular imagination. Uh, going outside of uh, committed GAA circles. Like Loud have never really energised the Loud public with a run to an All-Ireland final, you know, in our generation. But nonetheless, they've used every trick in the book, their own fundraising, which has been substantial, that foreign investment, which, you know, now it's seemingly that the curtains are coming down on that, and their own central funding from a well-run, very professional, although technically amateur organisation. and you know, the sod has been turned and construction's ongoing and they're building a stadium and it's something that will create a focal point in the biggest town in the county, which could rejuvenate loud inter-county GAA. As Martin says, I mean, and it is an interesting question, you know, it was revealed, I think, um, when Shane Ross was still Minister for Sport, that a lot of money had gone to what you might consider to be very privileged, well-moneyed organisations like hockey clubs in South Dublin and so on and so on. And when he was criticised for this as sort of being somewhat inequitable that you were giving more public money to already well-funded and relatively affluent clubs in affluent areas, Ross's answer was fairly straightforward. Well, they're the ones that applied. They're the ones that filled in the form and went through the process and asked for the money and organized themselves to say how it would be used. While other maybe less politically savvy clubs or less well-organized clubs in more deprived areas, which probably could have had a bigger social impact had public money gone to them, they simply didn't apply for the process. So Martin's point that, you know, can we look to ourselves as a club 
and really claim that we've done all we can to get together a coherent plan and present it to kind of win political support, that is probably a question. That committee, you mentioned whether it exists still or whether it needs to be reformed or whatever, you know, it is probably a legitimate question. Ultimately, you would like to see every stakeholder aligned, ownership of the club, the fans, and the local people seeking political office, the council, national government. When you have a coherent plan coming from the club, that sort of, and rather than being critical and shrugging our shoulders and politicians and presuming bad faith on them, when you present them with a coherent plan, make a case for equitable funding for this region, make a case for the economic and cultural dividend that Dundalk FC gives. And I'm talking here about not only bringing the community together on match nights, but also, you know, providing a an outlet for kids to be doing something productive rather than to be doing nothing at all. You know, there is a lot of ways in which you could present Dundalk FC as being worthy of public investment, certainly in a way that other clubs have benefited from. And I suppose until we do that and we do that consistently and in the long term and we do it in a sophisticated way, we'll be forever looking at a, a, an Oriel Park, which is only getting the occasional lick of paint here and there rather than substantial fundamental change. I suppose we better wrap it up at that point, given that we have another show to do after Monday night's performance against Shells, which will hopefully continue Dundalk's upturn in form that we saw on Friday night. I'd like to thank all our contributors on Twitter who kind of weighed in with their opinions. I'd like to thank Martin Mullen, Damien Kenny, and Rory Murphy for joining me for this chat. And we'll be back to talk to you after the Shells game. Oh, the face of football, the face of football.